Well, if I've been talking about Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, when I was a real young guy, I would have uh, expounded it a bit like this, that, brethren, this is a great example of a zealous man who stood up for the things of his God and who drove out false brethren and who grabbed hold of every kind of apostasy and sorted it out and... Uh, what a great man he was. He grabbed hold of these people who mowed out of the faith and pulled their hair out. I mean, wonderful stuff. And, uh, you know, great example to us of our zeal for the truth. And, unfortunately, that's how many people would take it. Over the years, over the decades now, I've seen so much damage done by hard-line approaches. Hard-line desire to... Uh, destroy other people because they're accused of apostasy and not only the damage done to the, in, to the individuals who are focused on but also the damage done to the wider community damage done to people's own kids um, and many others who've you know who go wrong in their lives but they then feel that well the brethren uh, wouldn't tolerate this therefore God doesn't tolerate it therefore I'm kind of finished seriously with the things of God and they drift off to the world and they're lost. And I would estimate that the vast majority of people that I've seen lose their faith and drift off. There's, of course, it's multifactorial, but one uh, consistent uh, strand in the reason why they have done so is this hardline approach. And you may say, well, don't exalt me about that. I'm not like that. I'm just a little person who believes the truth. But... The very fact that we are in uh, an exclusive relationship with God and we believe that we shall be saved and certain others shall not be, uh, which is what the Bible clearly teaches, this quite clearly is going to at least set us up to the temptation of slipping into this kind of mindset. And I want to analyze a little bit more, in a little bit more detail why and how Nehemiah ends up like this. We'll start off uh, in verse 1 where um, they read in the book of Moses where it's written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever well actually what Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 says is they should not come in forever and you probably know that this uh, Hebrew idea of forever really is for the period um, until the tenth generation well it was already ten generations after the time there of, of Balaam uh, etc so uh, there was sort of a, a willful uh, picking a, 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 of a reason to have some kind of uh, com some kind of division and confrontation, and of course earlier Ruth was a Moabitess, and the uh, command was about the Ammonite and the Moabite, uh, and she was accepted as the Book of Ruth shows. And in, in Ezra 9 verse 1, we read that. Judah at that time had returned were worshipping the idols of Edom and Moab so they were worshipping the idols of these people and Ezra was contemporary with Nehemiah as we saw in Nehemiah a couple of chapters ago so it seemed pretty, seems pretty hypocritical to make this big issue of a division uh, from Moabite uh, wives etc when they were worshipping their gods and he talks in verse 3 about separating Israel from all the mixed multitude. But of course the mixed multitude is a phrase that you read very often in the Exodus about how the mixed multitude were redeemed along with Israel out of Egypt. 
And so straight away you start sort of wondering about this. Of course, in one sense it's very commendable that they read in Scripture what they should do, and they immediately did it, no matter how complex and complicated it was in practice to work it all out. So, you know, I'm not trying to knock uh, obedience to God's Word. That is highly commendable. And when was the last time that you and I read something in Scripture and we went and did something concrete and actual? But then he, he goes on uh, in, in verse 14, he's lamenting, uh, uh, well, he, he's talking about how he's done so much for, for God. O oh my God, concerning this, remember me, and wipe not out, blot not out my good works which I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. And that Hebrew word translated offices is normally translated guard or watch. It's as if he kind of felt that the protection of God's house, a bit like the preservation of the truth, somehow depended upon him, and because he'd driven out all these uh, apostate people, he thought he should get some commendation, some kind of reward because of that. Well, it seems to me that God is quite capable of defending himself, and that's why I hate this word apologetics when it's used about... You know, sort of trying to prove that uh, God really exists and that uh, he created the world, no evolution and all this kind of thing. Uh, God doesn't need anyone to apologize for him in, in that sense. God is complete as he is uh, and requires not help for man to defend himself nor his truth uh, on the earth. And he, he says, you know, don't... Uh, don't blot out my good deeds. It's almost a pathetic sort of cry, as if he's not really that confident about his final salvation and his final relationship with his God. And you, you see this a number of times in Nehemiah. Let's uh, start back in chapter 5, verse 19. Think upon me, my, good, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Again, all I have done, all his works. And think upon me for good this is very much the spirit of the, the thief on the cross You know, when you come back in the day of judgment remember me for good and he, he's sort of it's almost a desperate sort of plea really that uh, God would be kind of merciful to him and as if he's not that assured of it and then back in our chapter chapter 13 uh, we've seen that in verse, verse 14 remember me for good and don't blot out my good deeds that I have done then verse 22, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Then finally, verse 31, he concludes the whole thing, Remember me, O my God, for good. This doesn't sound like someone who is secured in his relationship with God. He's got this fear all the time of the day of judgment, and how on earth is it going to work out? And verse 22 especially, And spare me according to the greatness of your mercy it's as if he feels well I should really be condemned but in the greatness of your mercy please don't do so now those two Hebrew words greatness and mercy this phrase occurs not so often in the scriptures the multitude of your mercies it's normally translated and three of those times it's used in the Psalms in Psalms, such as 32, 51, 106, which are about David's sin with Bathsheba, where he throws himself upon the multitude or the greatness of God's mercy. And it's uh, slightly uh, 
tempting to, to wonder whether Nehemiah had some major sin, maybe a sexual sin that preyed on his mind and he, he felt that somehow he had to throw himself upon God's utter grace and he was fearful about the outcome of the day of judgment. And yet he uses this same sort of uh, language about remembrance by God, uh, about anyone whom he considers to be apostate. Here in our chapter in verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priesthood. He, he means bring this up with them at the day of judgment and condemn them. Uh, a couple of other examples in Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 14 my God think upon Tobiah and, and Sambalat according to these their works and upon the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear so again he's saying bring them into judgment for all this think upon them for evil chapter 4 verse 5 cover not their iniqu iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before you when he says, please God, please spare me and please don't blot out my good works, but please uh, don't blot out their sin. Now, what's going on here? The similarity of the phrasing, remember them for bad, don't blot out their sin, but then remember me for good and don't blot out my good works. I think that he's sort of wishing upon them the condemnation that he feared for himself and straight away I think we perceive that something psychological is going on here rather than a genuine zeal for God's truth now on one hand it is comforting to think that every act of service is in some sense recorded by God but he's got this great nervousness and uncertainty of himself which seems to me somewhat unhealthy in spiritual terms because he's really feeling that he should be condemned but then in the very same terms he's wishing that condemnation upon other people whom he considers to be apostate and maybe they were uh, or indeed they, they were some of these people uh, and some of these people were in the world they weren't uh, members of God's people and is that not I fear what so often goes on that because of a bad conscience with God as it seems to me that Nehemiah had and I suggested why that might have been um, he has this bad conscience with God he knows that he should be condemned and so you refocus that fear of condemnation upon someone else and you punish them for their sin and it's kind of vicarious, it's a transference. In fact, psychologists would say this is a classic. This is classic transference, transference of guilt, transference of condemnation upon another person. And this explains why very often religious people condemn other people very strongly for the sin which they themselves commit so many times in my ecclesial experience it has been those who have taken the hardest line against sexual immorality, divorce and remarriage driving people out because of some marital failure or whatever who then it turns out that they themselves are guilty of having a long-term affair with somebody they themselves are terribly guilty, far more guilty than the people they've condemned and you think, wow, how strange is that? but actually it's not strange Actually, it's totally understandable. 
It's not justifiable. I'm saying it's psychologically understandable. Because what they have done is to transfer their guilt onto another person and started ranting and raving about that person and against that person because really it's what they feel should be happening to them. Now, from a bird's eye view, what you see then is huge hypocrisy, that people go and condemn others for the very thing they do themselves. But I'm probing further as to why that happens, and I'm suggesting that they are transferring onto those other people the sin which they themselves have committed and are eagerly punishing them for it. Apart from the obvious uh, sexual examples, um, a, a very uh, common thing is to say so-and-so is divisive. We disfellowship this person because he's divisive or we can't have anything to do with that because it's a divisive situation. And yet, by doing that, the people who start demanding, oh, that one must be disfellowshipped and anyone else who fellowships them must be disfellowshipped because it's a divisive situation, they themselves are being terribly divisive and they are very often the ones who actually are causing the division. And yet they know that subconsciously, not consciously, but subconsciously, and so they, they're taking out that upon other people. Now, we're here to examine ourselves, not others, and you, know, you look at your own life, who do you feel angry with? What really irritates you in other people's behaviour? Which people do you really have to struggle not to uh, really feel condemnatory about? They are people, I suggest, who in essence are doing what you are doing. Maybe in a different form, different terms, but that's what it seems to me. Now, let's go through Nehemiah 13 and just face up to the language that is being used about Nehemiah's behavior. And it seems to me, from what I can see, somewhat stronger in the Hebrew than it is in our translations. Because it's frankly awful. It's disgraceful. Verse 8. He threw Tobias' goods out of the bedroom. He literally chucked them out. I contended, verse 11. Well, and that Hebrew word seems to imply a physical wrangle. Like, you know, slapping or, or kicking or something. 15. I admonished. 17. I reprimanded the nobles of Judah. Verse 19. I commanded. It's a pretty strong word in the Hebrew. 19. I stationed certain people. 21. I warned them that if you come back and uh, trade again, I will use force against you. And he says, I personally. And the, the idea seems to be that I, I myself am going to beat you up. I commanded the Levites. Verse 22. Verse 25. I, about the people who mowed out of the faith. I beat them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> and then 25, uh, sorry, he, he, he chases, um, yeah, 28, he chases out this guy. I chased him from me. And again, this seems to imply a physical chasing. Now, putting all that together, you can get a, just don't get a very positive picture. This is physical violence. This is a, a very, very angry man. Now, I know you can talk about the Lord and the temple uh, driving out the money changers, but, I mean, there was a man who uh, really uh, could be angry uh, with the wrath of God, as it were, and not sin. But I am not 
really sure that any human being can comfortably think that they could make a, a whip and go around whipping people um, because you don't agree with what they're doing. Now, this whole language that he's using here is, uh, that's used here about his physical behavior, uh, I would suggest indicates a, a man out of control. And it's a shame, really, that the, the chapter ends as it does, because you sort of, you hope that you might read that Nehemiah sort of softens a bit, but, but you don't. Now, I sort of wouldn't mind all this if it were not for that group of verses that I looked at with you just now, where he's terribly insecure in his own private relationship with God. You know, verse, verse 22, Remember me, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy, just like you spared David with Bathsheba. Please, verse 14, don't blot out my good works that I have done for the house of my God. You know, it's always on about my God, my God. Um, you, you, I cannot fail but to make that connection between a man who is fearful of condemnation, a man who is insecure in his relationship with God, and someone who's running around being physically violent and, and angry with those who are clearly apostate from, from God's truth. Now, I... As I say, I, I cannot help but make that connection, and I don't want to be critical of Nehemiah, but I, I, I'm afraid looking at this chapter and rereading it several times, I, I, I just can't fail but to see that connection. It's been uh, focused on a lot lately uh, about bullies. Why do kids bully other kids, and how can you actually help the bully? And why are kids bullies, and why do people bully people in church life? And it goes on and on. People are bullies. There are bullies in our own community. There are bullies quite shamelessly who threaten disfellowship, who, who attack people, even using physical uh, methods uh, and uh, swearing, using obscene language, etc. Sort of screaming and shouting to get their own way, etc. And one of the studies that, that I read, and it's not the only one, uh, about bullying is that bullies are typically terribly insecure and have a very negative view about themselves. And again, this makes absolute sense psychologically. That because of that, they then have got to go and take it out on other people. And in spiritual terms, I would say, for believers, for those who claim to believe in God and Jesus, they're transferring their guilt for their own behavior upon other people and then punishing those people. Now, where does that leave us? Who of us would not admit to having anger at times that we express in a wrong way? We come to a very basic question, really. Do I really believe that if Jesus comes back at this minute, I will be in his kingdom? Now, if we really believe that he died for me and rose again and I am baptized into him and I have committed myself to him and I abide in him, absolutely 100%. Although I should not be there, by his grace I believe I shall be there. Now, if that is for real, and wow, I am going to live forever. I who am nothing. I who just am dust and ashes. I who am, you know majority just water waddling around on two legs I who have sinned so much I who have been so lazy in my spiritual development that I should live forever wow what a grace he has shown to me 
and you become secure in his love. Zephaniah says we shall rest in his love. And you simply don't behave like this with other people. You simply naturally do not. Now, by carrying on like this, as he did, I think he actually precluded God's plans for Judah and Jerusalem at this time. There's a lot of prophecies about God's intention for when Judah returned and rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And one of the things that is said there several times, and also in the last chapters of Ezekiel, which I take to be not so much prediction, but commandment about how they were to build the temple and operate it when they returned. It's written several times that the gates of Zion shall be open. The gates of Zion shall be open. And that the Gentiles could come in and uh, learn God's truth and become proselytes. But look, Nehemiah here shuts the gates. You could blame it on the people trading, etc., but... um, He seems to specifically do what Zion was not to do. He shuts the gates, and by pulling out these guys' hair, I mean, for sure, I mean, (laughs) Israel were not going to be a light of the Gentiles. These guys are not exactly going to get involved with uh, Nehemiah's religion, that's for sure. Now, so much potential was wasted. And so it is really, I think, by a mistaken uh, zeal for God. Now you may say, well, it's still zeal for God, even if it's kind of misplaced ideals and, you know, a few things got put in the wrong boxes kind of thing by by zealous brethren. But there is a cut-off point, and don't mistake that. Jesus says, the time will come when those who kill you will think they do God's service. So, zeal for God, I mean, Paul says, Israel had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, and it's not going to save them. This zeal for God in itself will not save. And some of it can be quite badly motivated by just basic psychological need for power, for you know, the weakness of pride, etc., etc. And there's a real possibility, you know, that brethren with their dark suits and their suitcases and their very well-read Bibles and well-marked Bibles will simply be picked up by the Lord Jesus and thrown into the lake of fire. Even, you know, with all their great uh, acclaim and name that they had as sound, solid, strong brethren in this life. I mean, I don't wish it upon any named individual. I really don't. I pray that all such people will not fail of God's grace in, in that day. But I'm just saying that there does come a cut-off point. And we've got to search our motives very carefully in all this. Now, I would like to just uh, say something also about uh, being secure in God's love, really, uh, that comes out of verse 26. I mean, of course, marriage out of the faith is wrong. And, yes, (laughs) One has to make some pastoral response to it. Whether you pull out a guy's hair, it's not going to teach him anything, uh, in my opinion. Uh, But it isn't right, and particularly for the Levites. I mean, if you're a a Levite and you want to do God's service, well, I mean, how how can you marry a Gentile? And we're all, you know, we're a nation of priests, 1 Peter 2.5. So 
you were there, the priest was going to be saying, oh, honey, you know, I just touched a dead animal today. I unfortunately had to do it, so I'm unclean until evening. I've got to change my clothes. Like, what? Your religion's crazy, man. Whereas the Israelite woman hopefully would say, oh, honey, you know, I just, uh, yeah, sure, I'll just uh, get you a new set of clothes out. I'll just iron them and uh, here you are kind of thing and uh, God bless and the rest. So, yes, it is what Dennis Gillett many years ago now used to call sanctified common sense, not to marry someone who, who does not share your faith. But I, in the context of being secure in God's love, I want to talk about verse 26 a little bit, because did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God. His, one of his names was Jedidiah, beloved of God. So, the antithesis is being pointed here in the text between the fact he was beloved of God and the fact he married out of the faith. Now, marriage is, in a sense, a searching for love. And I see no legislation under the law of Moses that deals with arranged marriage. Even though arranged marriage was common in most primitive societies or ancient societies, uh, and certainly in the nations around Israel. But it would seem to me that perhaps Israel was the only nation that didn't have arranged marriage. They had love marriage, like in the Western world we have, where you, you meet someone and you like them, you fall in love, and you get married, and you choose. But that is rooted in our need for love. That is why we get attracted to another person and want a partner who loves us. And Yet despite the fact that Solomon was so loved by God, he married other women, Gentile women. The implication, I think, is that he should not have done that because God loved him. And so marriage out of the faith because we want someone to love us, just spare a thought, if you're secure in God's love, I don't think you'll do that. I'm not saying, you know, it, it, it's... It cannot be repented of, and I'm not saying that you should kick people out of the church because of it or anything like that, not at all. But I'm simply saying that if we are secure in God's love, there will not be this desperate scramble for someone to love me. Because God loves you and Jesus loves you. In the simplest terms, that is so gloriously true. And so, if we really focus upon the fact that we are loved by God and by his son then it seems to me that we will not search for love as it were on the street of this world and we will not transfer our guilt onto other people and start condemning and judging them and taking it out on them because we will really believe that my sin has been dealt with that the guilt of my sin, of my iniquity, has been taken away. And if you really believe that, that guilt has been taken away, and in one aspect the death of the Lord Jesus was as a guilt offering, if we believe that guilt has been taken away from me, and you really feel that, you will not have all the psychoses that go with guilt, needing to put that guilt on someone else and beat them up over it, even in the name of upholding your religion, upholding your truth and the rest of it we'll be able to live calmly and at peace because quite simply we know that he 
loves me.